wisdom attend, let us listen to the Holy Gospel, peace be to all. people pressed upon him to hear the word of God. He stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust him out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep, and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fish, and their nets did not break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished at all that were with them, at the draught of fishes that they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Fear not, from henceforth you shall catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please sit. Today is the 15th Sunday at the Pentecost. It is the first Sunday of Great Luke. The first Sunday that we begin reading from the Gospel of St. Luke now until Great Lent. Um, maybe a little bit before Great Lent. But anyway, um, after the elevation of the cross of Christ, after the beginning of the new year for the church, we begin reading from the Gospel of Luke. I think it's because, this is my theory, I think this is because from now until December, we, in worship and in prayer and in reading from the Holy Scriptures, we have an eye towards the Nativity of Christ. We have that in mind. You see that ahead of us. And it is, great, and it is in the Gospel of St. Luke that we hear more detail, more information, about all the events that led up to the Incarnation. And so that is why I think the Church has, begins to read from St. Luke now, at the beginning of the new liturgical year. 
We know that the other three Gospels start out differently by establishing the divinity of Christ, his two natures. Matthew begins with the genealogy. We'll hear that at the Feast of the Nativity. The three sets of 14 generations where he traces the lineage, the royal human lineage of Christ back to David, all the way back to Abraham. All the way back to the beginning. Abraham to Israel is like George Washington is to America. He is the beginning. He is the father of the children of Israel. So Matthew traces Christ, his human lineage, his royal human lineage, all the way back to Abraham, the beginning. Mark, he begins with the baptism of John and the voice that comes out of the, of the heavens that declares, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then, of course, St. John begins with the pre-eternal Logos of God. The pre-eternal co-created Logos of God who enters into our space in the fullness of time to reveal to us the Father. But today we hear from St. Luke. We also begin a little bit into the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 5. And we hear again, we begin again with hearing about the beginning of the Galilean ministry Christ calling the apostles. As you know, right after his baptism, Christ goes to Nazareth. And he takes the scrolls from inside uh, the synagogue, opens the scrolls to the prophet Isaiah, and reads to them and say, Today this hearing is fulfilled in your presence. And they reviled him. They threw him out of Nazareth. They wouldn't have anything to do with him. And so Christ descends to Capernaum, down to the shores of the lake of Galilee, Gennesaret, it has many, Sea of Tiberias, it has many names. He goes down to Capernaum on the shores of, Lake Gal- of the Sea of Galilee, there to take up his home and to begin his work. He who spread out the heavens like a tent now descends to a little town on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee to make his home. He goes down because the Sea of Galilee is at a very, well, like all lakes and rivers and bodies of water, they're always at the low point in the, in the surrounding topography that, that is around it. Water collects where it was low. So the Sea of Galilee is low. It is the lowest freshwater lake on earth. 700 feet below sea level. So it gives us a whole new sense of Christ's condescension to mankind. He leaves the heights of heaven and he goes down to the very lowest parts of the earth, 700 feet below sea level. We see this also repeated at the nativity. He is born and laid in a cave with animals to come for the salvation of men. After being turned away from the innkeeper, we see this again when he descends into Hades to visit to, to reveal himself to those who have died after being rejected by the world, crucified on the cross. So we see his great condescension to mankind. So here we have Christ going to Capernaum. I read somewhere that the name Capernaum means Nahum city, Nahum the prophet. This, this is contested, so I'm not quite sure if this is the case. But that the name of Capernaum means the city of Nahum. Nahum was the prophet who proclaimed mercy 
and peace and restoration to Israel after they had been taken captive by the Babylonians and they were promised to return and to be restored. So this was Nahum City that Christ first begins his work for Israel and for all of mankind. And he goes there. He takes up his home and he begins his work. He is doing healings and preachings and miracles. And St. Luke records that in his healings, he drives out the demons from those who were ill and afflicted, and the demons were crying out aloud to him, What do you have to do with us, O Son of God? They proclaimed it loudly and identified him as the Son of God. Very similar to what happened to the demoniacs on the other end of the Sea of Galilee, uh, the, the uh, Gadarene demoniac. Same kind of response from the demons that were driven out. What do you have to do with us, O Son of God? Christ then needed to move on. The people of Capernaum wanted to restrain him. They wanted to stay there. And Christ responds to them by saying, I have to preach the good news to other cities as well. So he crosses the Jordan, and now he goes into Bethsaida. Bethsaida means house of fish. <laughs> That's what you do in Bethsaida. You fish. It's like Gloucester, Massachusetts. You fish. This is the only game in town, except goods and services that support the fishing industry. Uh, so Bethsaida, the house of fish, that is a fishing community. That's the only thing you do there. <clears throat> Bethsaida is the home of Peter, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee. Apparently Zebedee was a pretty good fisherman. He had a couple of boats. He had many crew members. Peter, the sons, James and John. Peter might have also been one of his hired uh, crew members. I don't know, but it sounds like at least Peter was in collaboration with Zebedee and Peter, James, and John. But he was a great fisherman. Supposedly he had a lot of money. According to tradition, he was married to Salome, who brought spices to anoint Christ on early, the first day of the week with Mary Magdalene. So it all ties together. And of course, uh, Christ, the, the same thing happens in Bethsaida. The multitudes followed him. The multitudes pressed upon him to the point that he was driven to the edge of the Sea of Galilee, to the water's edge. And here he, who would later walk upon the waves of the sea, chose instead, well, to help himself to Peter's boat. And he told him, put it on for a little from the, sea, from, the, from the land, a couple of yards off, and he would continue to teach the people. And of course, after his teaching was done, Christ said to Peter, now put forth. Put your boats back out into the water. Lower down your nets for a great catch. And you hear Peter's response. We don't know if Peter knew that this was Jesus. We don't know if he knew, if he heard about all the things that had taken place in Capernaum. It's hard to say. We do know that in his response to Christ, he responds with the, uh, the affirmation of Master. So at least there was some sense that Peter knew this was not an ordinary man. This was not just another rabbi. This was somebody very special. And Christ says to him, put out your boats for a catch. Now, you have to remember, Peter just got home. Peter had been fishing all night long and got absolutely nothing. Nothing. He was discouraged, he was exhausted, he was, uh, oh, he was broke. He had no money, he didn't have a catch, didn't have a single fish. He was going to go home empty-handed, empty pockets. 
He had already washed his nets. He was about to store his gear. And here, Christ says, put out your boats again, and you will have a great catch of fish. I've been there. I've done that. I remember being in a boat with a friend. We had were tied up. We had a breakdown. We had to be at the dock for three days. And then when we had to go out to retrieve our gear, all the fish had rotted. They were rotted. They were worthless. Clean the nets, throw them over the side. And now you have just spent $1,000 in fuel just to get out there. You not only are you broke, now you're behind the eight ball. You're down $1,000 in fuel and you've got nothing to show for it. All of us have had that occasion where we have done something. We gave it everything we had and we failed. And then we're asked to do even more. We know what happened at the end of the story. They catch such a huge catch of fish that they, they couldn't even pull into the, into the boat. When they did finally call the other boats to help them, they began to sink. There were so many fish. And Peter falls down at Christ's knees. And he says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. At this moment, no matter who he thought Christ was before, Peter now suddenly sees and he recognizes who God is. And by contrast, who he is. He wasn't a bad man. He was a strong man. He was a vigorous man. He was an active man. He was probably impulsive. We know from later on, he had that streak in him. He was impulsive. Um, but yet he falls down before Christ and says, Depart from me, for I am a simple man of Lord. There are several things we can glean from this event and from the epistle from uh, the Holy Apostle Paul to the Corinthians. Number one is, the spiritual life begins when the eyes of our hearts are opened to see God for who He is and correspondingly who we are in relationship to Him. It's kind of like AA, you know? There is no chance Procure unless you're willing to acknowledge and admit that you are helpless in the throes of this addiction. Until you acknowledge that you are helpless and you are imprisoned by this addiction, there is no chance for recovery. Our addiction is the constant delusion to self-importance, self-sufficiency, autonomy. That is our addiction. And like AA, until we see God for who He is and who we really are, for the first time seeing ourselves honestly, there is no hope for us, uh, for the kingdom of heaven. No hope. Secondly, spiritual growth takes place when we are willing to accept, when we are willing to accept the things that God lays upon us that even, that even exceed our imagination, that are beyond our strength, our ability, our perseverance, our patience, our endurance, when we are willing to accept those things that God lays upon us for His glory. It is almost always the case, and with all the saints, all the martyrs, all the patriarchs, that they responded positively to what God called them to do that was beyond their strength, that beyond their capabilities. Moses, against the Pharaoh of Egypt, he who was slow of speech, 
Even back up, Abraham, when he was asked to offer his son Isaac on the altar as a sacrifice, his only son Isaac, Isaac, who was the promise of what, who was the hope of God's promise to him, Sarah was barren, the hope that his descendants would be greater than the, sea, the, the number of the seas of the sand, offered this son Isaac to God. And he was obedient, and yet God provided the land for him. Joshua, against the, the armies of the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and the mighty walls of Jericho. David, against Goliath. The Pharaoh Topos, when she accepted the annunciation of Gabriel about the incarnation. Peter, when he stepped out of the boat, walked upon the waters. And each and every one of us, if we are willing to empty ourselves, be cleansed, and then become vessels, tabernacles, for the good use of God for his glory. Every single one of us, if we're willing to accept what God asks of us, what God lays upon us, that we feel is impossible for us, he will bring it forth. He will make it happen. We hear from the Holy Apostle Paul. He refers, we hear references to his persecutions, his sufferings, uh, as an apostle, as a Christian. The great hardships he had to endure that were thrown at him while he spread the good news of the gospel of Christ. And it's the same thing, the hardships, the persecutions, the sufferings are for all those. He was trying to tell the Corinthians, they are waiting for all of those who are also willing to swim against the current, who are willing to swim against the rapids of the world in order to get to the wellsprings of life and eternal life. For all those who are willing to strive against the first instinct of fallen humanity, which is self-preservation, self-gratification. And that we should not hope, we should not coddle the uh, expectations that we will have fame, fortune, uh, comfort and ease in this life. But just the opposite, if we are to follow the Master, Comfort, fame, fortune, ease. That actually was a good description of the Corinthians. Very proud, very wealthy, very sophisticated, um, very comfortable people. Yet Paul wants to say to them, look at me, look at my sufferings, look at my hardships as an apostle of Christ, and be willing to follow Christ and do likewise. Actually, if we have all those things, wealth, fame, uh, power, comfort, ease, it may be a good sign that we're far away from God, or there's a good chance we will be seduced by them. King Solomon started off so well, and yet he ended so badly. So badly. Why does there have to be suffering? Why does there have to be uh, uh, hardships? Why does there have to be persecutions? Why do there have to be crosses in this life? First, to show to show that the um, I what I'm trying to think of because we heard in St. Paul it is so that um, it is beyond a shadow of a doubt that the transformative power belongs to God. 
not to us. Whatever good we may do, whatever blessings we may have in this life, are from God and not from our own achievements, our own efforts, our own intellect, our own uh, savvy with the world. They are from God. The transformative power belongs to God. Put in earthen vessels. The crosses confirm we are but earthen vessels. Secondly, it is also to strengthen and make resolute our faith so that we're not just fair-weather Christians. Fair-weather Christians. So that we will cleave to God even when the storms crash upon the shores of our life. We will squeeze to him no matter what. And this cannot be gained unless we are willing to endure suffering. It's kind of like weightlifting. <laughs> the more weight you put on, the stronger the athlete gets. And so that is the reason for these sufferings. That is the reason for these burdens. That is the reason for these, um, uh, what? The disappointments and sorrows of life. Today, when we hear about St. Peter and the opening of his eyes, let us be like him. We often hear descriptions in the gospel where Peter was stripped for work when he was fishing. When you do hard, vigorous, strenuous work in a hot climate, you take off clothing so that you, you can stay cool. Or like when Peter took off his clothes and leapt into the sea to meet the risen Christ on the shore. Let us be like St. Peter. Let us strip ourselves of any pretensions or any sense of uh, what? Inflated self-importance that we may still uh, struggle with you know, in the days and the weeks and the years ahead. Let us strip them away. Strip them off so that God can do good work in us. And then, when the crosses of life are laid upon our shoulders, when there is hardship, when there is uh, sorrow, there is persecutions, let us remember that it is all for a purpose. It is not done, uh, what, capriciously. <coughs> it is in order so that we might decrease in order that Christ may increase in us. There is a purpose. There's an old saying about the church under persecution, whether it be in the Roman times or just 100 years ago in the Soviet Russia. There's a mix of the analogy between faith and a nail. They say, the harder you hit the nail, the deeper it goes in. The deeper it goes in. So when the persecutions and the hardships and the sorrows of life hit upon us, let it drive the nail of faith deeper into our hearts. Deeper. So that we may be transformed, transfigured. We uh, transcend our fallen human nature and take on the humanity of Christ. Christ says, the servant is not above his master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. If they keep my words, they will keep yours also. The eternal life, the new life, means dying to ourself so that we may be born anew in the divine humanity of Christ and take our place in the ancestral home, our new ancestral home, the kingdom of heaven. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, O Lord Jesus Christ, God have mercy on us and save us.